Welcome to LSHTM Viral Season 3, a podcast exploring the science behind global and public health. I'm Carl Byrne. I'm Amy Thomas. I'm Naomi Stewart. And every fortnight, we'll explore the latest developments in the COVID-19 pandemic and take a deep dive into vaccines and vaccinations. The UK has now marked one year since it first went into lockdown and held a minute silence for the 149,117 citizens who have died in the UK from COVID-19. Worldwide, there has now been reported 123.2 million COVID-19 cases, with 2.7 million deaths. The USA, Brazil and India have seen the largest numbers of confirmed cases, followed by Russia, the UK and a number of European countries. The USA has also seen the highest number of vaccinations, with 124 million doses having been given which equals about 37 doses per 100 people. The UK has given almost 30 million doses, with about 40% of the population having received at least one dose of vaccine. Most European countries have vaccinated between 10 and 15% of their populations with at least one dose. And whilst these vaccinations should be celebrated, there's still a long way to go with many countries as of yet reporting no COVID-19 vaccinations. These vaccinations are only possible due to the speed at which vaccines have been developed, tested and rolled out. In this episode, I take a look into how vaccines work, the different types of vaccines that exist, and what goes into them. We also address some of the myths and concerns around vaccines and vaccine development. My first guest today is Helen Fletcher, Professor of Immunology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hi Helen, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me today. This episode we're looking at vaccine development and I've got a few questions to ask you around how we go about making a vaccine. But first of all, could you tell us how a vaccine works? I'm an immunologist, so I'm going to give you an an answer from the immunology perspective. So our immune system can be broadly divided into two major parts. So the first is our innate immune response, and it's really fast acting. It responds immediately that we're exposed to a pathogen. It's very effective, but it acts almost the same way every time that we encounter a pathogen. And so uh, the problem with this is that some pathogens have actually learned how to evade our innate immune response. And so we need the second part of our immune system, which is our adaptive immune response. And our adaptive immune response is slower. Um, It can take up to a week or so to fully develop, but it's highly specialised. And once activated, the naive B and T cells, which are part of our adaptive immune response, they start dividing, they expand and they differentiate into antibody producing B cells or effector T cells. And these uh, T cells um, and and B cells are are actually quite short-lived and when they've done their job they rapidly die and they leave behind them small numbers of memory B and T cells and these memory cells are primed and then ready to respond the next time that they encounter that specific pathogen. And I guess you know from the day that we're born our adaptive immune response is encountering and responding to microorganisms And so as we're exposed to different organisms, we're accumulating more and more of these memory T and B cells. And as we grow and as we age, our population of of memory cells, you know, reflect our our pathogen exposure through life. Um, And these memory cells then um, protect us into childhood and into adulthood. 
um, and into our, our later years. And so vaccines are actually designed to take advantage of this ability of our adaptive immune response to generate memory cells. So our memory B cells and T cells, they rapidly differentiate and expand um, uh, when, when, we are, when we give a vaccine. Um, and then they are there so that when we encounter the pathogen, they are ready to immediately act and in a very specialised and effective way, they will control uh, the pathogen and prevent us from developing disease. So vaccines are taking advantage of um, an immune process which is with us from the moment we're born. And a single vaccine will be one among you know, many thousands of minor challenges and exposures that our immune system encounters through life. One of the incredible things about uh, the vaccines for COVID-19 is the sheer speed at which they were developed. They've gone from having nothing uh, less than a year ago to having um, numerous vaccines that are proving to be incredibly uh, effective against COVID. How was this process carried out to ensure speed uh, as well as safety? I think what, what's absolutely extraordinary to me, uh, you know, about the vaccine development for COVID-19 is that it was done without taking any shortcuts. It was done at speed and within less than a year, the, we did the same amount of work that would usually take five years. And, and it wasn't done by cutting out any steps in the process. It wasn't done by compromising safety in any way. It was just done by throwing an enormous amount of effort at the problem. So we invested large amounts of money, researchers and you know, people within pharmaceutical companies just dropped everything um, to look at making a, a vaccine for coronavirus as quickly as possible. And that's because for those of us who work in vaccine development, we know that vaccines are the most effective and cost effective public health tool that we've ever had. It's only through vaccination that we've been able to globally control and even eliminate um, diseases. And so from January last year, it was immediately obvious to people who work in, in vaccine development, particularly those people who were focused on outbreak pathogens, that everything needed to be dropped and we needed to start working on this um, as quickly as possible. And I just think it's just hugely rewarding and, and fantastic as somebody who is interested in vaccine development and watches this to have seen the efforts that were put into that. And what's also great is that all of the information has been made publicly available so we can see for ourselves um, in the scientific community, um, but also in the public, you can um, access all, all the documents, for example, on the MHRA website, which detail, you know, everything that was done over the past year and show you that, you know, that everything is there that you would expect to see in terms of safety testing of these vaccines. It was all, you know, just done at pace. And I guess there were risks associated with that in that instead of doing one small section of your vaccine testing and then waiting to see what happened before you started the next, waiting to see what happened in your phase one trial before you started your phase two, wait, waiting to see what happens in your phase two before starting your phase three. So, you know, they were, they were preparing for vaccine manufacture. 
before they had the results of the first phase one safety trial. And I guess it was because people were, you know, prepared to take the financial risk of sort of having a worthless investment in manufacturing capacity just for the, for that gain of, of being able to have that, you know, licensed vaccine in hand a, a few months earlier. There are still some unanswered questions. And, you know, I think for me, the biggest question is really how long is the efficacy going to last for? And so typically when we do clinical vaccine trials, we would follow uh, participants in those trials for, um, you know, one year, two years, three years to see how long efficacy lasts for against disease. But of course, because we needed these COVID-19 vaccines as fast as possible, we couldn't, we couldn't wait a year. Um, and so the trials were designed by, um, you know, enrolling, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, very large numbers of people, um, and following them for a relatively short period of time so that we could get an answer as fast as possible and we could get licensed vaccines as fast as possible. If you look at where we are now, that has turned out to be completely the right decision. You can see the impact that the vaccines are having. You can see hospitalizations reducing, mortality uh, dropping. And so it was completely justified to get those vaccines out as quickly as possible. And as I said, absolutely no compromise in terms of the regulatory process, the safety steps. We have these vaccines now, which are, you know, incredible. And we're all, we're all just waiting to see how long this fantastically uh, high efficacy will last for. So that's less of a safety concern, more of a a concern around if we'll have to give booster shots further down the line? Yeah, exactly. That's right. So it's not it's not a safety concern at all. So there was no compromise on, on safety um, measures at all within the in the vaccine development. It might be that we need to be giving, you know, booster shots in 12 months time. Obviously, we do that with influenza vaccines anyway. We need uh, new influenza vaccines um, each season um, because of the different uh, strains of influenza. So when you go about developing a vaccine, what do you look for in a target antigen? So the adaptive immune response is highly pathogen specific. And so a vaccine has to very precisely mimic a fragment of the pathogen that it's designed to protect against. So we can give the whole organism as a vaccine, but more typically we would give um, a fragment of that organism. Um, and so that fragment could be a protein or a toxin molecule, a piece of DNA, a, a lipid, ideally something that's ex expressed on the external surface of the pathogen so that the antibodies which are generated can rapidly bind and neutralise. The new mRNA vaccines have been mentioned a lot in the press recently, but there are of course other sorts of vaccines as well. Can you talk us through some of those different types of vaccines? And so we have a spectrum, if you like, of different vaccine types going from the whole organism itself, which is relatively untouched, right down to, uh, you know, I suppose most recently an mRNA fragment, which is a very sort of tiny piece of the organism. There's advantages and disadvantages to the different types of vaccines. So if you go for a um, 
a whole uh, live organism as a vaccine, then that's the most natural way, if you like, of immunising, because you're establishing very, very minor or self-limiting infection, which will then protect against a more severe infection. An example of this is our smallpox vaccine. So if you think of the very original smallpox vaccines, which were developed back in the 18th century, um, what they did was they took a... Um, a cow version of the smallpox, a, a, a cowpox virus, and it caused a very mild infection, just a small lesion, usually on the hands of uh, milkmaids. But what people noticed was that milkmaids who had this small lesion on their hands uh, from catching the cowpox, from milking the cows, uh, were protected against smallpox. Um, and so that, that association was made and then people realised that they could use some of this cowpox virus to actually uh, protect against human smallpox on a large scale. And so Edward Jenner was the person who, uh, you know, was a very big proponent of that and helped to really spread the word and get cowpox used to protect against smallpox viral infections. Going into um, slightly more modern times, obviously, if you're if you're giving a, a cowpox infection, um, you still might get a lesion. It's not very pleasant. Some people, if they're immunocompromised, may get more of an infection. And so people were looking for safer ways of immunising. Um, and, and what they realised was that you can you can actually make organisms less pathogenic by growing them in the laboratory. And just to confirm by less pathogenic, you mean it's less likely to cause illness? Yes, sorry, less likely to cause illness. Uh, yes, exactly. So, for example, the BCG vaccine that we use today is based on the um, cattle form of tuberculosis, uh, Mycobacterium bovis. And people grew uh, Mycobacterium bovis in the laboratory um, for um, many years. And uh, having it in the laboratory um, and, and growing it sort of again and again, they encouraged the organism to sort of naturally lose some parts of its genome that were was associated with causing disease. And so you ended up with an attenuated um, mycobacteria. And so that attenuated mycobacterium bovis is actually the BCG vaccine that we use today. So that was generated in the lab in, in 1921, um, literally 100 years ago this year and is a vaccine that even today remains one of the most widely distributed vaccines in the world. So there we have you know, a sort of historical example of the live vaccine and then an attenuated vaccine. And then the next um, step down is um, killed vaccines. So this is where you take a live organism and you can kill it either by, by heating it um, or by treating it with radiation. And so the advantage of this is that you're retaining all of those antigenic components, all of those structures of the organism, which are important for inducing an immune response. But now the organism is completely killed so that you know that there's not going to be any risk if somebody is immunocompromised or, or that it might accidentally mutate into a way which is more pathogenic. But the problem with that is that uh, a dead vaccine, a killed vaccine, actually usually is it's less likely to stimulate this uh, immune response in quite the same way. And then moving on from the killed vaccines, we have the subunit vaccines, which are the ones that we're more used to thinking about today. And so these subunit vaccines will be, you know, it could be a protein or it could be a viral vector 
where we take a protein and, and put it into a virus molecule which has been very, very highly attenuated so that it can't replicate, or even that, that mRNA fragment itself. And in some ways, what we think is that these subunit vaccines, you can view them as being uh, safer because they are containing, you know, just one or two small fragments of the organism. Obviously, there is no way that that small fragment is going to cause an infection um, that you might get with, you know, a live replicating vaccine. But the payoff is that they tend to be less effective and less protective and the, the effect is, is, is shorter lived. And what we have to do with the subunits is to um, mix them with something called an adjuvant, because uh, if you just give a protein molecule on its own to the immune system, then that innate immune system isn't activated. And if you don't get any activation of the innate immune system, then you don't tend to get the adaptive immune system coming in on top of that. So the adjuvant has the effect of basically poking the innate immune system with a stick. And then whenever the innate immune system starts barking, it alerts the uh, adaptive immune system to activate. Yeah, exactly. It's poking the immune system with a stick. With regards to the new mRNA vaccines, do they need an adjuvant? And also, how do they produce an immune response? With a, a virus where the uh, genetic material is mRNA-based, then that is recognised by our, our cells as foreign and can itself act as an adjuvant. Um, however, you do need to get the mRNA molecule into the cell and the surface of our cells are, are quite fluid. They're made of um, lipids. And so what we need to do is, is get this mRNA through this lipid membrane and into our cells. And the, the best way to do that is to coat the mRNA molecule in lipid itself. The mRNA molecule coated in lipid will meet our cell, which is essentially a bag of lipid, and those two lipid membranes will fuse together and then the RNA is released inside the cell and then can take advantage of our cellular machinery and start being translated into protein. And that then brings us to one of the more modern forms of vaccines which have been developed over the last few decades, which are the viral vector vaccines. Can you tell us a bit about them and how they differ from uh, the ones you've already described? The viral vectors are interesting because they actually combine one of the advantages of having a, a subunit vaccine um, with some of the advantages of having um, a live vaccine. So the adenovirus uh, vector, for example, is um, it's a live adenovirus, but it's been attenuated. So what that means is that the adenovirus particle can infect a human cell and it can express some of its viral genes. And so what you do is you take your protein of interest, so for example, the, uh, the, the spike protein from the coronavirus, and you can insert it into your adenoviral vector. And so that, this means that when you give your adenoviral vaccine, you get expression of viral proteins plus some expression of your spike protein inside the infected cell. And then what happens with the adenovirus is that it's had large sections of its genome deleted, so it can't make any more viral particles of itself and it can't go on and infect other cells. 
So when we give the adenovirus vector expressing the spike protein, like we see with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and also with the uh, J&J vaccine and the um, Sputnik uh, 5 vaccine from uh, Russia, then you get a cell which is infected with this virus. You get a, a short burst of expression of viral proteins, burst of expression of the um, spike protein from the coronavirus, and then it stops. And so the nice thing about this is that you're prodding the innate immune system by delivering some of those viral proteins and delivering the viral particles as well. But you're also alongside that expressing some of the coronavirus proteins. And so you're very strongly triggering the innate immune response, kicking off a nice, strong adaptive immune response, but doing it with this attenuated viral vector, which can't go on and cause an infection in any other way. So it really is you know, using nature, sort of taking advantage of nature and the, the real kind of efficiency of viruses to be able to find cells and inject their contents into cells and take over that machinery to express proteins. So Helen, you've mentioned two of the ingredients that you might find in a vaccine, the, the antigen itself, and then in some of them you'll have this adjuvant that pokes the immune system. Are there other components in a vaccine? Yeah, so the components of a vaccine will fall into three different categories. There is the component of the antigen itself. Those molecules are grown in the laboratory and usually they are grown in tissue culture. So you'll have the component itself, which could be the protein, the DNA, the lipid, the viral vector, plus a, a very small quantity of salts and, and sugars and small amounts of protein as well. The second component that you have in the vaccine is the adjuvant. And the final component we see in vaccines is preservative or stabilisation material. And that can be something like polyethylene glycol, for example, which can act as a, a lipid and help that mRNA molecule to enter a cell, but it can also act as a preservative. The other feature of mRNA or RNA is that it falls apart very, very quickly. It's very, very unstable compared to DNA. And so, again, you need something in there to, to actually help that molecule to stay in one piece long enough to um, interact with our cells and have an impact on our immune response. When you spoke about mRNA vaccines, you already mentioned how mRNA needs to be coated in a lipid in order to get into a cell. But one of the concerns that some people have had, or perhaps a conspiracy theory that's been raised, is that mRNA vaccines can affect humans' DNA. Is there any science behind that at all? No, mRNA can't do that. So mRNA is inherently incredibly unstable. So we have uh, RNAs uh, so that this is our enzymes which can destroy RNA molecules, circulate at very high levels within our blood. They're also present in our sweat, in our breath, on our skin. So the problem that we have with the RNA vaccines is actually trying to stop them from falling apart long enough to be able to use them. Um, and that's why we have to uh, you know, look at uh, coating them with lipid and you know, looking at their structure uh, just to try and get them to hang around long enough to be able to enter the cells and start expressing their protein. 
And certainly the sort of foundations, if you like, within life is that you have a DNA molecule and that DNA molecule is transcribed to RNA and that RNA molecule is translated to protein. And we certainly don't have the cellular machinery um, to be able to back translate that RNA into a DNA molecule and DNA and RNA wouldn't combine themselves. Thank you very much, Helen, for joining me today. I appreciate that immunology is an incredibly complex subject and uh, for you to try and uh, condense it down into uh, a few minutes has been really, really helpful. So thank you very much for that. Okay, thank you very much. This is the part of the show where we answer some of the questions that you've sent to us. To answer them today, I'm joined by Professor Beata Kampman. Beata is Professor of Paediatric Infection and Immunity and is the Director of the Vaccine Centre here at LSHTM. Beata, thanks very much for taking the time to answer some of our listeners' questions. Things are moving so fast that the issues raised in these questions has sort of already come and gone uh, with the release of the long-awaited US trial of the Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID vaccine and the EU and UK reviewing of the clotting issue. However, I think it's worth addressing these concerns that some of our listeners have. So our first question is from Anika, who asks, how concerned should we be in regards to the side effects of the COVID-19 vaccinations, considering that Denmark has currently, at the time of writing, temporarily halted their vaccination programme? And Rebecca asks, some countries have stopped using the AstraZeneca vaccine over reports of it uh, not being effective in the over 65s. Should we be worried about this? Thanks for asking these questions, Carl. And to, although, you know, new results are coming in all the time that are really reassuring, I can understand why people might feel concerned. And that's why it's so important to talk about it. I do feel very confident that, uh, you know, all the regulatory agencies have actually approved the particular vaccine in question um, in, in Europe and in the UK, and that's the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, where there were these particular issues raised um, just recently, and uh, some countries in Europe had decided to suspend the, um, the rollout. And, you know, that has raised quite some issues also with relation to overall confidence in the vaccines. So I think what we need to reiterate here is that the surveillance system is really working well because it was the surveillance system that picked up what we call adverse events. Now, it's really important to distinguish between adver adverse events and things that might have a, a causality link. So if we give you know, in the in the clinical trials, 40, 50,000 people were um, enrolled. And obviously, you know, you can only get signals from so many conditions that happen in that size of population. So once you start rolling out vaccines to millions of people, and just as an example, over 17 million people have now received the AstraZeneca vaccine, other things will come up as events. That doesn't mean those things are related to the vaccination. Just to give you a very simple result, you know, someone gets the vaccine and then they go home and they get knocked down by a car. Now, that's not a vaccine related event in that sense. You know, it's not caused by the vaccination, but it's timely associated. So it will still be reported. And I think what is really important is that people distinguish between adverse events that are reported and the serious attempts to see if there are any causal links. And this is what the committees are, are there to do. And this is why some countries had precautionary measures of stopping the vaccine rollout. And one can debate whether that is wise at a time when the vaccines have really been seen to be so effective and also safe.
So is it um, part of this precautionary method? Are these built into all vaccines that are released? And it just so happens that the, the system's kicked in uh, at a time whenever a vaccine's being released around the world, it's been shown to be very effective and safe, but because of these few um, adverse effects, the, the mechanism in the country has stopped the release of it just sort of as a, as a matter of course. Yeah, so it's really a, a country specific and a regulatory authority specific um, uh, system. And, you know, for example, in the UK, uh, nothing was stopped. And in Italy and in Austria, only certain batches were stopped. So you can see a lot of heterogeneity in the way that countries might deal with it. And the majority of these surveillance systems are actually, or none of them have ever really been created for a vaccine rollout in a pandemic, which is unprecedented what's happening right now. And if there's a lot of alternative products and if there isn't the same urgency, then it might make sense to precautionary hold a rollout. But at a time when probably stopping the vaccination campaign will actually uh, cause people to come to more harm and more deaths and, and hospitalizations, one can argue that maybe these uh, uh, surveillance systems need to be looked at in terms of stopping rollouts at a time when in the pandemic it would be demanded to have as much vaccine going around as possible. And that's certainly the line that the UK has taken. Some of our listeners will obviously have friends or family members who might be a little bit concerned about the news of these vaccines being paused. Is there anything you could suggest that they... Um say to their friends and family in order to increase their confidence in the vaccines? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really important to measure a minute risk of a potential side effect against the huge proven benefit and against the risk of as a person, especially as a slightly older person, getting a COVID infection and having to be admitted to hospital and uh, potentially having you know, short-term and also long-term sequela from COVID. And that risk by far outweighs any any small risk that might be caused by the vaccination. But just to come back to this question about uh, not being effective in the over 65s, that is clearly not the case because we already knew that that was unlikely to be the case because the immunological responses to the vaccine in the older people was just as good as it was in the younger people. And the trial results just released today from the AstraZeneca trial in the US have further confirmed that because they had a large uh, percentage of people above 65 enrolled in the trials. So, you know, when you want to talk to your families about safety of vaccines, we've actually designed a bit of um, information on our vaccine center website because this is a really important topic and uh, lots of people have questions. So in the short video, you can see how the vaccine safety is established, what's in vaccines and which committees and independent uh, observers and committees who are independent from industry also are involved in establishing the safety of vaccines. So you might find it helpful to just have a look at those clips. And you can find a link to those videos in the show description. Beata, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining me for this deep dive into vaccine development. Amy, Naomi and I will be back in two weeks time with another episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with comments about previous episodes or questions you'd like to see us answer in future episodes, you can email us at comms at lshtm.ac.uk. That's comms at lshtm.ac.uk. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review and share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Until next time, I've been Carl Byrne and you've been listening to LSHTM Viral.